Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for this chance to, to hear your word and to gather together as a community to hear the teaching of your word. I thank you so much for this church and all that they have done for me and my family. Lord, how they have been so responsive to the teaching of your word. And I pray that this, uh, this message will really minister to them in a very special way. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Alexander the Great is regarded as one of the most skilled and gifted military leaders in human history. He was, uh, you could say, destined for greatness. When he was a child, his father, Philip of Macedon, did the impossible and united all the Greek city-states into one nation. When he was a teenager, his father looked for the finest educator in all the land to tutor his son and came up with a man by the name of Aristotle. You might have heard of him. At the age of 20, he assumed the reins of the Greek empire, and he decided that he wanted to conquer the world. And so for the next 10 years, Alexander the Great was undefeated in battle. He took down the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and extended the Greek empire all the way to modern India. Well, when things in Babylon began to turn south and that city began to plot a rebellion, he brought his armies to the gates of that city, and as he was preparing for battle, he came down with mysterious illness, and within two weeks, he was dead. Word of his demise shocked the nation. In fact, people did not believe in Greece and his homeland that he actually passed away. And what made this especially difficult was there was, no obvious, there was no obvious hereditary heir. He built this great kingdom. And according to legend, when he was on his deathbed and asked who to, he should give the kingdom to, he said, uh, to the strongest. And this great ancient empire crumbled because there was no succession plan. Now, fortunately, Jesus does not make the same mistake. In fact, it's really interesting when we last left off, remember how Jesus, he, he heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath of all days? And when he does so, the, the Pharisees, the observers, the watchers, basically cry foul because you can't heal somebody on the Sabbath unless it's a life-threatening emergency. And so he challenges their cruel and unusual interpretation of the Sabbath law, and he goes ahead and he heals the man, and what's their response? Well, 6 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They start to plot murder. And it's at this dark turn where you start to realize that, that they actually want to kill Jesus that we see a succession plan begin to form. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he came to his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called, uh, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, from the beginning of Luke, we see that there is a drive for Jesus to build his kingdom. He's going to be the king. He will conquer sin and death, and he will do so by perpetuating a message. 
And when Jesus is taken up into heaven, he will give the reins of this kingdom work to none other than the, the 12 uh, apostles. And what we see is throughout Scripture, there is a succession plan built into the DNA, right? The Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, which would include this command to make disciples, right? One generation to another, 2 Timothy 2, 2, and these things entrust to faithful men so that they may be able to teach others as well. Timothy is to find people that will be able to pass on what Paul taught to him to somebody else. Now, I know it might be a little bit nerve-wracking that I go away for two weeks and the sermon title is Succession Plan. Um, That's just kind of the way it began to work and how it kind of came together. Uh, But honestly, I mean, it's kind of when you're here for 15 years and just seeing uh, even some of the former elders, right? David and Barry and, and George. I mean, they, they gave way to the younger elders, right? That's just the way it works. We realize that no generation is eternal. One generation has to pass on the faith to the next one. Uh, we have a lot of children in this uh, building, which is great news, right? Because there's going to be another generation, All along the way, we realize that Christianity is one generation away from extinction, and there needs to be a perpetuation by always ministering in light of the succession plan, right? And that's a work that begins whenever you even begin a ministry. So I'm thankful just for the new blood and the new elders that are rising up, and and, and hopefully this will just kind of give us a grid and give us an understanding that this is what the church is about. So when you look at this passage, you kind of see two elements of the succession plan. It's very basic. The first one is you supplicate to God, right? And then secondly, you select the successors. And so what we're going to do is just kind of briefly go over this outline and then then consider uh, what gets in the way of successful succession planning. But let's start with the first one. You supplicate to God, verse 12. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray... And all night he continued in prayer to God. So in the midst of doing all the miracles and all the teaching, Jesus takes an entire night to pray. Now here's a question for you. What is the longest you have consecutively prayed? I can answer that question because I know. It's one hour. And do you know why I know? Because it was a seminary assignment. I know, I'm shallow. But I remember we were supposed to pray for an hour every single day. And I remember the first time I said, okay, I'm going to pray. So I got, had my stop clock, you know, had my timer. And I prayed all the supplications. And 10 minutes later, it's like, okay, well, maybe I ought to confess my sin. I'll confess my sin. 30 seconds later, I... Um, <laughs> it's longer than that. Then praise and adoration, and I'm just like, my goodness, it was hard. It was hard to, to be that focused. And, and so you look at Jesus, right? He, he starts praying at, let's say, 8 o'clock, before the day and age of coffee. Remember, he was a man after all. He is up all night. And sometimes we just think that Jesus, when he prayed, he had such an intimate relationship with the Father he could just go up to the top of the mountain with a tablet and say, okay, Jesus, okay, uh, God, this is Jesus. Who do you got? 
But he was laboring in prayer, and when the sun came up, he finally had his answer. He knew who he was going to choose, because he understood that this was uh, really the most important ministry decision for him to make. Who would continue his ministry? Right? And that's why selecting successors is not something that, that you take lightly, right? It is something that has to be guided by God. We beseech him, we seek him, we, we supplicate, and, and we draw upon all the wisdom that the Lord has given us. Because the Bible does say a lot about who to choose to lead the church, right? You have uh, the qualifications of elders, who is a godly man, what is the strategy? Guided by scripture, driven by prayer, you select the right people to take over, to, to, to lead. So verse 12 And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So he prays all night. In the morning, he goes down and he chooses from among his disciples. Jesus didn't just have twelve disciples. You know that, right? We know later on that he sends out the 72. There is a big mass and cluster of people who are already following him at this point. And he comes down and he selects 12 among them. And he chooses the 12 of them to become not just disciples, but apostles, sent ones. One uh, rabbi at the time taught that the one sent by the man is as the man himself. These people were to be representatives of Christ. They were to speak on his behalf. In fact, later on, he sends them out in Luke 9, 1 through 6, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, right? He sent them out to do the work of proclaiming the kingdom. These 12, they'd have special access to him, right? They had the VIP backstage pass, right? They were consulting with him, talking to him, facilitating his ministry, Uh, They would watch him do the healings. They would sit under his teaching. They were with him, and and this is a huge deal. The final night of his life, Jesus confined that final audience to the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. They were trained. They were developed. They were selected. And why 12? Well, the most obvious answer is it corresponds with the 12 tribes of Israel. In Luke 22, 19 through 30, Jesus says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? There's a continuity there. Better to go out and minister to the lost people of Israel and then beyond. So who are these disciples? Well, the list is found in verse 14. And what's really interesting is when we look at this list and compare it with the three other lists in the New Testament, all of them start with Peter and they all end with who? They all end with Judas. And they're all, there's, there's, there's three different groups of four. And in the first group of four, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, all four of those, those first four in every one of those lists, there's a, there's a hierarchy involved. There's even leadership within this apostolic structure. But every man mattered. And every one of these men had their own unique personalities and contributions, starting with Simon, 
who is called Peter. He is a native of Bethsaida in Galilee. Famously, he is a fisherman. Some people say he was the gospel, he was the, I'm sorry, the, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? Where he was somebody who said many wonderful things and many terrible things. He did many great things and miserable things. Uh, some of my favorite Peter stories are, remember when in John chapter 6, Jesus has this huge crowd. They're all drawn to him because he's feeding 5,000 people and they're wanting another serving at the buffet, And Jesus tells them that unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And everyone is just like, what is this cannibalistic teaching that he has? And people start to fade away because the the teaching is so hard. And Peter is standing by Jesus. Jesus looks at this crowd that's dwindling and he says, do you guys want to go as well? Remember that? And Peter says in John 6, 67 through 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? Peter gets it right. When Jesus asked the disciples, so people are calling me Elijah, John the Baptist, but who do you say I am? And he says in Matthew 6, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? He gets it right. He makes some of the most profound statements about Jesus in the Gospels. But at the same time, when the mob tries to arrest Jesus, he tries to play the part of a hero and stop that from happening. When Jesus is on trial for his life, Peter says, I don't know the man. But then at the end, we find that he is restored to ministry. And he is to feed the sheep. He was the leader, right? His brother, Andrew, is notable because he was the one who brought Peter to Jesus. Did you know that? Peter was introduced to Jesus by his brother. And in addition to bringing Peter to Jesus, remember when they had the 5,000 people and Jesus says, where are we going to feed everyone? Andrew brought a little boy to Jesus and says, well... He's got the five barley loaves and two fish. What do you think? Right? Andrew is someone who is kind of a sidekick to Peter, but someone who has a propensity to bring people to Jesus. Then you have James and John, who are the sons of thunder. Right? They're very, very colorful men. I think one of my favorite stories is when they were denied entry into Samaria. James and John, who got to experience some surge of miraculous powers, I mean, they were casting out demons, they were healing the sick, and and they thought about maybe one of their heroes back in the Old Testament, Elijah, who called down fire from heaven, and they say, Jesus, you just say the word, and we'll go ahead and incinerate these Samaritans, right? It'll be epic. No CGI needed. We're going to do it. And, And Jesus is like, no, thank you, right? They just have this flaming temperament. Uh, these were men who, who had a, a very successful fishing business, so much so that they were able to hire servants to help them out. And this ambition may have parlayed itself into just the ministry in general. One thing that we read about that I find very entertaining is that in Matthew uh, chapter 20, their mother, right, their mother, get this, you know, kind of the stage mom, goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you to give us whatever we ask. Oh, really, what's that? 
Uh, my sons want to sit at the right hand and the left hand of you in the kingdom of God. They want to be the secretary of state and the vice president of the kingdom. And it's not like James and John were up there going, Mom, right? In another account, they're the ones who ask, right? They were clearly behind this. They were ambitious. And yet for their faults, the first martyr, the first one of the apostles who would die would be James. He'd give his life. John lived to a ripe old age, but when you read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the Gospel of John, he is dominated by this word, love. He became a, a gentle soul, ambitious for the cause of Christ. Then you have Philip. Philip lived in the same town as Peter and Andrew, and, and he, um, he's kind of known as a little bit uh, obtuse. Now, going back to the feeding of the 5,000, this is where all the personality of the disciples seems to come out. Jesus is looking around and saying, so how are we going to feed all these people? And, and Philip basically does the math, and this is what he concludes. John 6, 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Right? I did the math, Jesus. It's not going to happen. He's the bean counter. When Jesus tells his disciples that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You can just see Philip in the, you know, kind of raising his hand, you know, doing a little one-upmanship in John 14, 8, and says, Lord, show us a Father and it's enough for us. He doesn't quite get it. But after the resurrection, he did. Tradition tells us that he was one of the great lights of Asia. He ministered with his two virgin daughters. Then you have Bartholomew, who's also uh, named Nathaniel, introduced to, to Jesus in John 1.45, where he is uh, praying under a tree, and he's introduced by his brother Philip, who brings him to Jesus. And when Philip tells him, look who I found from Nazareth, and he says in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And he did. Then you have Matthew, the tax collector. We read about him, also known as Levi, sitting at the tax booth. Jesus basically calls him to follow him. And Matthew leaves everything to follow his Lord. Not only that, he throws a big party and invites all his rowdy friends to come hear about Jesus. And you have Thomas. Remember Thomas' nickname? He's known as Doubting Thomas. And why is he known as Doubting Thomas? Because after Jesus was resurrected and after the disciples all seen him and testified to him, he says, you know, unless I see the holes in his hand and decide, I'm not going to believe. But he was also a man of tremendous faith. In John 11, Jesus gets a summons to help heal his sick friend. And he, he is the, at the northernmost point of Israel. And he decides to go south to Jerusalem. And when he goes into Jerusalem, he's going into Mordor, right? He's going into the teeth. He's going into a place where he's going to be persecuted. And Thomas says, let us go that we may die with him. If Jesus is going to die, I'm going too. You have James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know too much about him. Also known as James the Younger, except for his mother was at the cross and that he had a brother named Joseph. Likely came from a believing family. You have Simon the Zealot, 
which indicates that he was part of a political movement that sought to conquer Rome through assassination. But he renounces that and pursues a better kingdom. You have Judas, who's also known as Thaddeus, and you can understand why he changed his name. Judas is not a popular name among Christians, right? Then you have Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. We don't know what Iscariot means. It's probably where he's from, but he was someone who would commit the most dastardly deed in human history, betraying the Messiah, betraying his own discipler. Now, when we step back from this, you, you see a pretty diverse group, right? You have the outspoken and the silent, uh, the rational and the emotional. You have the patriotic zealot and the tax collector. And yet, they were all brought together by a common commitment to Jesus. Judas would eventually be replaced. But they had different gifts, different abilities, and they, were, they also had some strategic similarities, right? They were all men. Because they were ministering in the city square and in the synagogues, that was almost necessary. They were also free men. They were not entangled. They were not owned by anyone else. They were also middle class, where they were able to reach both ends of the economic spectrum. And they all had a common commitment to Christ, and that is what really knit them together. So when you look at our church, right, there's a, um, there's a, a real similarity in the sense that we are also very diverse. Person by person, all of us have been redeemed in different ways. We all have different spiritual gifts. And when you look at a succession plan, it's, it, it's pretty clear that you can never replace Jesus, right? You can never do a one-for-one replacement. But Jesus, in his succession plan, replaces himself with the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 17 through 20, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there's many parts, yet one body, all united to Christ. And he uses the unique gifts to accomplish what he wants. And so all these disciples were different, but... At their best, right? At their best, each of them began to almost reassemble Christ on earth. And when they're gone, the church has replaced them. We're collectively, at our best, we represent Christ here on earth. That is the succession plan that he has in mind. Now, when you look at uh, the need for a succession plan, it's not just for leadership of the church, agreed? We have people who serve in the kitchen. We have children's ministry, youth ministry, security, music. You go on down the line, there always needs to be new blood and new people who are brought in to succeed, right? That's part of the DNA of the church. And so why is it that sometimes we, we fail to do so, right? I, I'm going to give you the, um, the seven deadly sins of succession, all right? Why do some people fail? Well, number one would be maybe a lack of planning. Finish this sentence. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Now, what's interesting is many succession plans, um, they fail because people don't really have any plan to begin with. And what's interesting with this is, is Jesus, when we get the first hint that he's going to be martyred, Right after that in the Gospel of Luke, we see him select his disciples. 
And he is very intentional in passing on the information. Right after this, we have the Sermon on the Plain where he preaches to them. Then, then in chapter 9, he begins to send them out on almost a trial run, right? He is giving them parting instructions the night before he's going to be crucified. Jesus was very diligent in training his disciples. He had a succession plan. The second deadly sin is the presumption of peace. I mean, a lot of times we think, well, if you've got a church where people love the Lord, we're going to automatically get along, right? What could go wrong? Now, Jesus ministered to disciples, and I think the night before he was going to be crucified, check out this little snapshot into their lives. Luke twenty two twenty four. a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. He's about to be crucified, and they're talking about who's the best. You see, in the absence of a plan and in an absence of leadership, there's a vacuum, and it's usually filled by the most selfish, self-serving, and assertive members, right? If there's not a plan and you fail to do so, you're setting up the next generation. It's like dying without a will. Thirdly is the, the preservation of tradition, right? There's often a sense where in our vanity, we want to believe that when we were in charge, that was the golden age. The best ministry happened when I was the pastor or when I was leading the Bible study. When I was running the kitchen, you should have seen how things would have gone. And what you do when you do that is when you kind of have that golden age mentality is you tell the next generation that your job is to make sure the good times keep coming. You need to preserve what happened. And, and so you have what we call sacred cows. We've always had an evening service. Our church has never existed without it. It's the backbone of the church. You can't get rid of the evening service. We've always used a Sunday school curriculum. Oh, if, we, if we do that, we're just going to lead these kids into apostasy. And so you begin to tell the next generation that you are obligated to do things the same way. Now, what's really interesting about Jesus is Jesus did not see his present three-year ministry as the golden age. Did you know that? In John 14, 12, during the last night, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Jesus tells the disciples, the best is yet to come. When I go to the Father, you will have a completed gospel. I would have been dead, buried, and resurrected. The atonement will make perfect sense. I will be resurrected. I will go to the Father, then I'll send down the Holy Spirit. The best ministry, according to Jesus at this point, is in the future. Right? The Holy Spirit is still running and operating this church. People will come and go, but there is a forward movement. And as Dave kind of mentioned in his prayer, yeah, times are going to be different. We have greater challenges ahead, but the church will always be up to the task because there is a promise that it will never die, and the Holy Spirit will still animate it and move it forward. The fourth sin is delegation of responsibility without authority, right? Nothing's more exasperating than being given a job and given responsibility for the job without the authority to do it. So you hand over the kitchen and the food's not as good. You allow a guest preacher in, in, in the pulpit or you have a younger person lead your Sunday school class and the teaching's not as quality. Well, that's all part of the process. I actually have one of my, I have my first 
message I ever preached on a cassette tape. I let Becky listen to it and she told me I should burn it. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I still keep it there because I think it would be a real encouragement to a lot of people to hear how bad I was when I preached my first sermon. Right? All great preachers, all good preachers were at one time bad preachers. All right? There is a development there. And speaking of development, a lack of development is part of it. I mean, what's easier, teaching your children to clean their room or cleaning their room? Right? We know the answer to that. Sometimes it's just easier to, to just do it myself, but that will never generate um, a succession plan. The sixth is an identity crisis, making your role your identity. Now, I love the term Pastor Dave, but it implies that Pastor is my first name and Dave is my last name, right? It's an identity, and I love it. I love the ability to, to speak truth, to minister to people, and, and at some point in time, that will no longer be the case for me. It might be Pastor Emeritus or whatever. I remember talking to a friend of mine who um, disqualified himself deeply from ministry, and one of his biggest griefs was he could never be a pastor again. That was tied to his identity. Your identity might be, I'm the one who makes the best pie. No one can make a pie. A potluck will be a failure without my pie. But when that's taken away, how do you, how do you respond? What happens when you're no longer an elder or a deacon or a Bible study leader if your ego is tied up to that position, if your, if your identity is in what you do and in your service, well, not only will you be deeply discouraged, you'll lose the ability to really support the next generation. Your identity, well, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then the seventh deadly sin is pride. If you're proud, you believe that your ministry and what you do is indispensable to the church. That the job of your ministry, whether you say it or not, is to bring glory to you, not to the Lord. You believe that the church will be diminished without your input. But the reality is, you know, all of us are but dust. Psalm 103, 14 through 16 tells us, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for his wind passes over it and it is gone and his place knows it no more. hundred years from now, people won't know your name. <laughs> the only people who will know about your existence are genealogical nerds in your family line, right? That's it. But anything that you do to build up the church for his glory, uh, the church is continuing, serving, growing, developing, defending the truth, proclaiming the gospel. To just have a part of that, that is, that is what it's all about, right? That is ultimately our calling. See, ultimately, this, this church doesn't belong to us, does it? Right? Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he sent the Holy Spirit, and as one person steps down, as one person passes on, the Holy Spirit will add somebody new to keep the ministry going. Now, it might change from generation to generation. God has his reasons. 
But the message will be the same. The Lord will be the same. The power behind it will be the same. All that to say, if as a church, we need to be pro-succession planning. And this is what it means. For some of you older generation, things will be different. And that's okay. Be okay with that. Root for the younger generation to succeed. And for the younger generation, you may have never saw yourself as actually being in charge of anything. The prospect of assuming leadership seems kind of scary. But your number is going to be called, and when it does, you take it as part of God's plan to keep this church going. And as you are called, you look into calling somebody else to take your place at some point in time in the future. None of us are irreplaceable. The only irreplaceable person in this church is Jesus Christ. And because he died, was buried, and rose again, he will live forever. In fact, he's alive right now. And at some point in time, he's going to come back and take the church to himself. But in the meantime, he's left us as stewards of the church to grow his church, to make a people for his own possession. He will proclaim his excellencies, who will live under his lordship and be used to do great things until his kingdom comes to earth. Succession is not uh, something to be afraid of, something to plan for, something to affirm, because that is how the Lord will keep his church. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are thankful for the work that you've done in this church, and we pray that you will continue doing it. I pray for the next generation of leaders, that they will be eager to embrace it, that they will put themselves forward in humility, trusting that you are the one who is going to call them to a deeper commitment and make greater sacrifices. Lord, I thank you for the legacy of many of these men and women who have served so faithfully, who have soldiered on through this ministry, and as they relax some of the grip on their ministry, I pray that they will be cheerleaders and get behind this rising generation, and that years from now, when Flint uh, Hills Bible Church continues short of your return, it will be found as faithful as it is right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.